Jeremy, I feel like this time of year living in Chicago, small talk, like what I do in the office with patients when I'm preparing to give them a shot or something, and you're not talking specifically about their health concern, you're just kind of like doing something else, um, tends to revolve around the weather. Do you feel the same? Well, I think that that's more than just the office, Julie. That's the uh, that that's every party I go to as well. Because <laughs> it's easy enough, and it doesn't. Hey, mean- you! <laughs> How about that weather out there? It doesn't bother everybody, and you can all commiserate together because you have no control over it. And it's just something benign to discuss. That you know, if you're pissed off, you're pissed off together. Um, and then, as an aside, can we? Take a minute to pour some out for our homie, weather legend Tom Skilling, who is slated to retire from his position as meteorologist and weatherman at WGN Chicago after 45 years uh, at the end of February. I uh, I was a little nervous there for a second. I don't follow Tom all that closely. <laughs> oh, no. I thought you were telling me he was like, he no. kicked the bucket. So He's at least like... it's just a retirement. Yeah. yeah so maybe... When Tom has his retirement party, do you think there will be a lot of talk about the weather with the small talk? <laughs> I don't. I think that'll be verboten. They'll be like, "Why would I talk about the weather with with the the grand poobah of weather?" You feel like it's like talking to I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of any analogies right now. Yeah, what do you think his favorite cloud is? Cumulus. <laughs> Now I want to go to this party very badly. For for those of you new to our podcast, we do usually get to the medical stuff well before this. Sorry. I'll get so, there. Fine. Let me get back. To, I'll, I'll put us back on track. So commiserating with fellow temperate climb folk is like a badge of honor around here. Don't you agree? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So in the Midwest. Sloshing around. Yes. Yeah. Right now it's very wet and slop slop outside. Here in the Midwest in the dead of winter, the loss of daylight hours, in addition to the often inhospitable temperatures and like snowy and icy conditions, it just feels like insult to injury. Um, It reminds me of that viral TikTok of the woman that was clearing snow off of her car, repeating, we don't have earthquakes, we don't have hurricanes, we don't have alligators, (laughs) right? Just convincing yourself? Right. It's like, it's okay. We have this horrible, not temperate weather. Um, So, however, regardless of whether you tough it out in the northern U.S. in cold winter conditions or you escape to warmer temperatures down south, none of us are immune to uh, seasonal changes in the amount of daylight hours. The winter solstice comes for us all, whether you're in Fargo or Fort Lauderdale. However, there are some small variances in the amount of daylight, like far north versus far south, which is what I learned was only about like an hour. So like at the winter solstice, there's only really an hour between way up north and way down south. But the days get shorter for everybody. Jeremy, do you feel like the loss of daylight may uh, affect your mood? Oh, yeah. I, okay. I, I, I think I've said this on this podcast before. I have lights, baby. I have, <laughs> I have seasonal affective lights. <gasps> I stare at the light. Ding, ding. Well, good. Well, yeah. Have you ever wondered if you had seasonal affective disorder? I don't wonder at all. I frequently have it. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, then this episode is for you. So, yeah. And and as an aside, I think it's either genius or like a giant bummer that the acronym for this condition is SAD. SAD. Right? So today I want to talk about seasonal affective disorder. Who gets it and why? And can we treat it? Can we prevent it? And what is the science behind it? Is that something Mm -hmm. that you, you might be interested in, sir? Yes, I'm taking out my pen and my paper right now. <laughs> to see if you're doing all the right stuff to treat your yes. to treat your symptoms that you're currently having. Good. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, that's awesome. And and my last fun fact is the first days of summer and winter are called solstices, and the first days of spring and fall are called equinoxes. I don't know. I just thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> so if you learn nothing else. <laughs> it's 
Yes, you can just stop listening now. All right, let's talk. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right. So the idea of covering this topic came to me after we recorded our chrono nutrition episode is my mind was like on circadian rhythms, right? Um, But then my mind jumped to other issues that folks may experience with respect to like sleep-wake and light-dark cycles, and boom, here we are, seasonal Yeah, you asked the question in the chrononutrition, you were like, but night starts at four, should I stop (laughs) eating at three? (laughs) Exactly, like when my whoop asked me, like, did you eat all your meals within daylight hours? And I was like, no, I had lunch. I'm still at work. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, totally. Yeah, so if you're ready, I would love to jump right in with some just um, definitions and epidemiology. Like, what is seasonal affective disorder? Cool? Let's do it. Okay. So according to the National Institute of Mental Health, seasonal affective disorder is a type of depression that's characterized by a sort of recurrent seasonal pattern, clearly, with symptoms that last about four to five months out of the year, which usually is uh, as long as the winter season can be in certain areas. Um, The signs and symptoms of seasonal affective disorder include those associated with depression, as well as disorder-specific symptoms that differ for a winter pattern versus a summer pattern seasonal affective disorder. So I wasn't even really aware that this even happened in the summertime to people. So people can get a seasonal affective disorder in the summer. Correct, yes. Much less publicized. Correct, exactly. Um, For winter pattern SAD... The additional symptoms that they're talking about, in addition to typical depression symptoms, which would be, you know, like just like general sadness, hopelessness, loss of interest in things, loss of finding pleasure in activities, that kind of stuff. So in, in addition to that, uh, winter pattern SAD people can get oversleeping, so hypersomnia, mm-hmm. overeating, particularly like craving carbs, and sometimes this can lead to weight changes, and then social withdrawal, so like feeling like hibernating. Which makes some sense. I mean, the, everything slows down. This seems sort of a, you know, following nature patterns type of thing. Um, and then for summer pattern, seasonal affective disorder, which is much, much less common, um, their additional symptoms can include kind of the opposite. So like trouble sleeping or insomnia, having a poor appetite leading to different weight changes, feeling restless or agitated, feeling anxious, or actually even violent or aggressive behavior. Hmm. I was... It's almost Very, like mania. Right. People are like, have like, so w- summer sad is like manic. Summer sad is like, yeah, it's like uh, positive symptoms, quote unquote. Yeah. Or, and then like winter is the negative. Uppers symptoms. and downers. Uppers, Uppers and, downers. and downers. Yeah. Yeah. So, absolutely. so winter, winter sad people are hibernating like uh, at in quiet, isolated, cozy corners. Yes. And win- uh, summer sad people are hoping for the fire festival right exactly yeah i think that i think that that fits um winter pattern seasonal affective disorder shouldn't be confused with just like holiday blues which you know i think uh, feelings of sadness or anxiety brought on by stresses at certain times of the year one can guess what times of year usually that's late december um because the depression associated with uh, seasonal affective disorder is related to changes in daylight hours not actually the calendar 
Um, so stresses associated with the holidays are like predictable seasonal changes in work or school schedules, family visits, and so forth are not the same as seasonal affective disorder, if that makes sense. Um, yes, and having yeah. feelings themselves is not abnormal. It is Correct. okay to also have these feelings intermittently, I would assume, yeah, over those periods of times. I assume you're going to define for me, I have to have probably these symptoms for a period of time to, quote, qualify for it. 100%, yeah? sir. Yeah, so like the diagnostic criteria. So to be diagnosed with seasonal affective disorder, a person must meet the following criteria. Uh, one, they have the symptoms of depression and or the more specific symptoms of winter or summer pattern, seasonal affective disorder, like we just talked about. Um, And these episodes occur during specific seasons, meaning it has to be in winter or in summer, for at least two consecutive years. Um, However, which is interesting, not everybody with seasonal affective disorder experience symptoms every year. So it might be like, well, in 2010, I had this, and then in 11 and in 12, but then I didn't have it again until 2017 or something. And that still qualifies? It doesn't have to be consecutive years? Correct. Hmm, interesting. Um, then these depressive episodes during the specific season are more frequent than depressive episodes other times of the year. So you're okay. noticing it at these patterns of like, this is happening and my symptoms are more intense or having more frequent problems during this season specifically. And really it's just winter or summer. There's not like fall or spring affective disorder. Make sense? Yeah, because those are equinoxes. <laughs> right, exactly. Like my car. Drive a Chevy. <laughs> now you all know this. All right. It's estimated that millions of Americans experience seasonal affective disorder, although um, most people don't even necessarily know that they have it. Um, and in most cases, uh, the symptoms of it can begin usually like in young adulthood, as many things do. Um, it's much more common in women than men. So, hmm. Jeremy, you may be an outlier a little bit in that situation. Um, it, no surprise, winter pattern is much more common than summer pattern. Um, it's much more common in people that live even farther and farther north, where there sure. are shorter and shorter daylight hours in the winter. So, like, people in New England are more likely to develop it than people in, like, Texas or Florida. And not necessarily just because of the temperature. It's really there. They have a little bit more daylight time. And it, and it, in this situation, I think, like, half an hour, an hour, like, matters, you know? So you don't think that cold would really matter there because the think, temperature well, differs. It does. I mean, like it, it. I think the temperature is part of it, and the ability to like feel more comfortable going outside. Um, yeah, I was going to say exposure to the light probably yes. matters too, yeah. right? Yeah, that okay. wasn't as pressed upon so much in the sources, but it was really like the northern, the, the more north you go, because there is even less daylight than sure. there is more south, which is not a huge difference, but there's a difference. Um, and then it's more common in people with depression or bipolar disorder anyway, particularly bipolar two, which is kind of like what you were talking about. Like if you had summer and winter <laughs> seasonal affective, it kind of sounds like bipolar two, which is like depression and hypomania. It does. It's Doesn't just it? somebody who has theirs affected by seasons, not necessarily. It's almost like a, predict- a more predictable bipolar two, at least of when you're going to have your symptoms. Yeah. That's really interesting. Might be a good thing. I don't know. It. Do you think also the time zone too? So like, you know, if you lived in Kentucky, Mm. you were at the like western part of the eastern time zone. Does that make sense? (laughs) So you technically probably get more light, right, than the eastern part of the eastern time zone? Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, this is interesting. We should do a study on this, Jeremy. So I wonder if those people tend to get less sad than the people who are in the, you know, like Chicago Uh. is here versus the central times it's interesting because like they would get those extra periods of light of of light of light yeah you're absolutely that's that's very 
interesting and yeah okay cool you got the wheels turning over here (laughs) they are turning um and then as you would expect additionally people with seasonal affective disorder tend to have other mental disorders like adhd eating disorders anxiety disorders panic disorders they they um can happen uh concomitantly and then it also causational no like associated correct yeah that we see some trends um it also runs in families uh, and it might be more common in people that have relatives with other mental dis- like illnesses, like depression or schizophrenia. So if it if other mental illness runs in the family, then those folks might be more likely to develop this as well. So, what causes it? What do you think? For me personally, yeah, yes, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, no, I mean that's that. It, in all seriousness, I get. I would think that the the effect on our uh, circadian rhythms just kind of like what we talked about yeah. it seems like the circadian rhythm is so important and we learn about it when we're i don't know i don't think olive has made it yet to the circadian <laughs> rhythm but it's got to be somewhere in like elementary school or like middle sure. school is the first yeah. time we probably hear about it and they're like yeah it's just when you go to bed and wake up and when you go to sleep you have this little rhythm and you're like actually it's the most important thing that happens in your body 100 percent, and like all the little nuanced you know hormonal peaks and probably part of your gut microbiome situation and everything the 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 universe that is inside of you has its own clock um yeah and we're just kind of scratching the surface of understanding how to listen to it (laughs) um yeah so causes are still being researched basically um most research to date has investigated potential of like winter pattern only um, because it's more common and it's easier to study and more people have it so there's there's a much uh, there's a paucity of research about the summer pattern, SAD, but really we'll just mainly talk about the research that's about the winter pattern because it's more common. The winter um, people are also way more pleasant. It sounds like the summer people are a little irritable. <laughs> you're like, I don't want to study you. I feel like you're going to stab me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so studies indicate that people with seasonal affective disorder, especially the winter pattern, have reduced levels of serotonin, which helps regulate their mood. So lower than regular folk that don't i guess not regular lower than folk that don't have sad True. um there's probably several biologic mechanisms underlying uh sad including and the biggest one talked about is circadian phase delay or advanced so they call this the phase shift hypothesis which there were many papers of which i only understand about five percent of the language that they use because they were so technical but in general and I'm making huge generalizations, so anybody who studies this is probably going to think that I'm a child. But um, it anybody basic- who studies this, go to yourdoctorfriendspodcast.com. <laughs> There's a little link there that says "Leave us a message." Yeah. Click that button, and we will put you on the show. Yeah, dumb it down for us, so I don't have to you, feel dumb. We will put you on the next episode. <laughs> You heard it here first. Yes. I want a, I want a detailed technical description. Thank I you. wouldn't even know what type of person does this. A, a neurobiologist? I don't know. We're about to learn. Yeah, sure. Um, so this, the phase shift hypothesis states that most people with seasonal affective disorder become depressed in the winter, at least in part because there's a phase delay in their circadian rhythms relative to their sleep-wake cycle. So it's basically us, like, it's the, it's the lag time that we're adapting to the changes in the light and the dark and our sleeping and waking. It's kind of like, reminds me a little bit of jet lag, but on a longer mm-hmm. scale. It's like that is really what they're saying, I think. Yeah. And if you know better, please tell me I'm wrong or that I'm a little bit right and how I could be more right. Yeah, no, I think I think you're, it made sense to me. Yeah. I think so, you know, jet lag or for, for us personally, I get a lot of uh, information on kind of how 
East Coast teams playing West Coast teams right. for like <laughs> sports and how that affects things and and again the shifts and things like that. So yeah, I think it's all probably all part of that. It's just a more permanent thing, right? Because now you've affected the light permanently. Yes, and well, and on a longer yeah, on a longer time scale than just you know a day or two certainly. Um, additional contributing mechanisms might include like our retinal sensitivity to light. Um, people that are, are, you know, neurotransmitter dysfunction in general, which I think is a lot of the understanding behind mental, a lot of different mental illnesses. Um, so like genetically speaking, maybe some people don't have the ability to absorb as much. Correct. Like the yeah. retina is not as interesting. Yeah. And then also the neurotransmitter dysfunction, meaning like if you're, it's not just like, yeah, your rods and cones in your retina, but like in your brain, if you're, if, if the, the receptors that hold on to serotonin are not as efficient or whatever as someone who doesn't have this problem kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's some neurochemical variances as well, which is probably what you could say about like depression, anxiety, and a lot of other mood disorders or other like even, you know, things like schizophrenia and stuff like that. Um, oh. Yeah. And then people that have genetic variations that affect their circadian rhythms and serotonin levels. So a lot of this is like, if at baseline you are genetically predisposed to having these problems because they run in your family. So it's kind of self Yeah, it sounds like this is an area where we don't have a lot of information. It sounds like obviously there's some like theories and probably a lot of research yes. going on. But at the end of the day, if you walk in and you're either diagnosed with or think you have seasonal affective disorder, much of the appointment is not going to focus on why they think why you have Why you have it. this. It's like, good, you have it. it. Let's just deal yeah. with it. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, vitamin D deficiency might exacerbate these problems in people with winter pattern SAD because... Vitamin D is also believed, and there's a fair amount of research about this, that it promotes serotonin activity. So vitamin yeah. D, we know, you know, pretty strongly that it, it uh, positively affects our bone density and our ability to pull calcium and things into our bones to keep, you know, without without vitamin D, you get rickets. So we know that. But I think um, understanding the that vitamin D works more like a hormone than a vitamin than many other vitamins do. Is that sort of yeah, your understanding the- of it? Yeah, it'd be interesting, though, because vitamin D is so associated with sun exposure, yes. right? We we get the most of our vitamin D from exposing to sun. So mm-hmm. if I had, for people who have a better vitamin D level, those people may be being exposed to the sun and therefore may not have as much seasonal effective. Right. It's disorder. like chicken egg. Yeah. So I guess in theory, and I didn't look at the studies, but maybe there's some studies where they had people get the same exact sun exposure, but they took supplementation of vitamin D. Mm. And it changed the outcome. And in that case, maybe you could kind of control that. But those, I think of vitamin D and sun exposure, and I think of them as being associated. Yeah, I would agree. And there may be, there might be a confounding factor in some studies looking at like, well, people that had a higher vitamin D, and then then what was their sun exposure? You're absolutely right. And like, how well did their bodies absorb vitamin D for whatever different reasons? Um, Yeah, so with less daylight in the winter, people with seasonal affective disorder might have lower vitamin D levels, further reducing their serotonin activity. And I didn't, I didn't see a specific study, although it might exist, uh, that's saying exactly what you're talking about. Sure. Um, other studies suggest that both forms, summer and winter, uh, of SAD relate to altered levels of melatonin. So that's the hormone uh, important for maintaining the normal sleep-wake cycle. So people with winter pattern SAD might produce too much melatonin, which can lead to increased sleepiness and lead to oversleeping. And again, Interesting. there's not really an explanation as to why does that happen, but they, there are studies that show that folks with seasonal affective disorder, not all of them, but have a propensity to have higher levels of melatonin during Would the winter. Would that imply that they have higher levels of melatonin throughout the year or it's only in the winter time? That I, they yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. 
you know, if they do produce it throughout the year, then my subsequent question would be, would what overcomes it in the summertime? And then if they don't produce it throughout the year, I guess my question would be is why do they produce it more in the wintertime? It's very interesting. Yeah. And in contrast, people with summer pattern seasonal affective disorder can have, not always do, but can have reduced melatonin levels. So the opposite. So that's consistent with long, hot days and then also worsening sleep quality that then they get, you know, they think leads to depressive symptoms. Um, so yeah, they also say that longer daylight hours, shorter nights and higher temperatures can also just cause sleep disruptions regardless of Mm -hmm. what your baseline melatonin level is. But really what I saw here was these theories have not been completely systematically tested. So it's just theories that don't have tons of research behind them, but I thought it was interesting to bring up. Well, I'm sure they have tons of research, just not good research. Right, exactly. Like not, and I shouldn't say good research. I'm sure people try to do good research, just not research that leads you to any definitive outcome. Uh, Yes. Um, So both serotonin and melatonin help maintain the body's daily rhythm that's tied to seasonal, like the day-night cycle like we talked about. So basically what they're saying is in people with SAD, these changes in serotonin and melatonin disrupt the normal daily rhythms. So like as a result, because of these imbalances between those two hormones, they can no longer, um, or hormones slash neurotransmitters, they can no longer adjust to the seasonal changes in day length. That's what leads to this sleep and mood and behavior changes. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it seems like at least this theory is leading me down a pathway of we're going to try to regulate those transmitters, either through medication or whatnot, right. uh, to try to help cure that problem per se. Yeah. And the last thing about, like, why does this happen before we get into, like, well, fine, how do we treat it? Like, you know, there's a little bit of, like, it's, it's you know, um, you know how I like to say it's, I don't want to get bogged down in semantics about just why it's happening. But I think understanding a little bit of the pathophysiology behind things and the etiology of stuff, it helps us to think more broadly about it. But, yeah, they were saying that negative thoughts and feelings about the winter, so, like, anticipating hating it, sort of, or summer... And it's associated, like, limitations and stresses are also very common. Like, these thought patterns are common with people with SAD. Um, but it's really unclear whether or not those thoughts, the, that anticipatory, like, ugh, this is going to suck, or, like, just not looking forward to it, are causes or effects of the mood disorder, right? But they can be a useful focus of treatment, of, like, behavior, cognitive behavioral therapy, which we'll get into. Yeah, I can certainly empathize with that. I yeah. feel like between January and April it just feels like Groundhog Day, except not the movie, but more so like every day <laughs> is just dark and cold. And you're yeah. like, when is this thing going to end? So I'm definitely one of those people that's like, what am I looking forward to? I know. And you have to try like extra hard to maintain yeah. your enthusiasm about things. I feel you. Yeah, I brought this this topic up mainly because I one, we talked about chrononutrition and, and I... I found the concept of just explaining circadian rhythms scary and daunting. And then I was thinking about, like, what's affecting me personally right this second? It's like, maybe I have a little bit of this going on. But maybe some degree of this sort of just winter blues pattern is just a human phenomenon, especially for people that live in temperate climates, like in the Chicagoland area. But I don't know. It was it was like, hmm, this relates to me. So I'm going to do a bunch of research on it so I can understand it a little bit better. Um, all right. So... How do we treat it? Jeremy, what's your understanding of treatment options? What would you guess are treatment options for seasonal affective disorder? You mentioned one of them earlier. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the things that come to mind are either trying to affect your light cycle. So again, I use the specific lumens of light in the morning for exposure to likely, I assume, affect my circadian rhythm and then hence improve my seasonal affective disorder. 
But then again, everything you just said before makes me think that there's probably also ways to treat it with either, you know, serotonin-based medications or melatonin-based medications or, or again, affecting those maybe through behavioral changes, like affecting those hormones. That, yeah. Those are the two avenues I feel like there probably are. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, you have pretty much everything, and I'll, I'll dive into, into some more specifics about it. But yeah, um, treatment options fall into like four main categories that can be used alone or in combination. So the first one, and I think the biggest one we're going to touch on, is light therapy. So this is for winter-specific seasonal affective disorder. It would not be helpful for someone <laughs> with the summer variant. Um, so yeah, this is. So been don't a, stare at light if it's <laughs> just light all the time. <laughs> I, do you yeah, stare well, at dark? Do you just uh, do, do, no? Do they haven't talked light? about that. I don't know. We have to ask Andrew Huberman. He loves staring at light. He loves talking yeah, about staring at light. The, so if the person has the summer one, I just right. do they like, st- they go into a dark room. And Maybe they, they or they the have just like an problem. eye mask on for a while. Or what's the the anti stimulation uh, thing? The float, you know, like oh, you know, God, you go, that sounds you, amazing. The desen- a desensitization chamber. Maybe that's yeah, like a uh, like the isolation chamber or whatever. Why can't I think of the word for this? People are probably screaming it at us right now. It's called like a. Oh, the, I just thought you would just go float. It's uh, yeah, it's are you talking about? It. The salt What's the other word for it? floating thing? No, but like it's a sensory deprivation. There you go. Chamber. All right. Chamber, yes. Okay, moving on. Since the 1980s, which was a great decade, by the way, um, light therapy has been a mainstay for treating winter pattern, seasonal affective disorder. Uh, it aims to expose people with the disorder to a bright light to make up for the diminished natural sunlight in the darker months. So you're right. For this treatment, the person sits in front of a very bright light box. So they say 10,000 lux, L-U-X, every day mm. for about 30 to 45 minutes. First thing in the morning, from fall to spring. So you start it in mid-fall, and you could do it all the way to the spring. Um, it's supposed to be first thing in the morning. Um, the light box is about 20 times brighter than ordinary indoor light, but it also filters out like the potentially damaging UV light. So making this like a safe treatment for most people, except for people with like, you know, significant eye disease, like glaucoma or retina problems, retinopathy, cataracts, they should check with their eye care provider first before doing this. Um, How much do you think it costs? How much did yours cost? If you had to take it, if you have to remind yourself. Um, well, I know there's a wide variance in how much these cost. You can get some quality ones. I know on on Amazon or whatever. I know mm-hmm. Wirecutter does an excellent uh, article on some of the ones that are that are the best. I personally, um, I know you're going to find this a huge shock. I can't sit in front of something for 30 to 45 no. minutes and do nothing. I don't Too know who hard. has time for that. At least with what we have going on in our lives. Frankly, if I did that, I would. It, I, I'm pretty sure that my kids would kill me. Like, I, like, <laughs> Dada. I, I, I would have Dada. to. I'd have to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd, I'd be scratching out my own face. Um, <laughs> so, I purchased actually glasses that have the lights. So I wear them and they walk around with them. I did not even know this. That's amazing. Oh, I just looked up the regular. I did a lot of research on those (laughs) and I'm forgetting what the brand is off the top of my head. Okay, Um, we can look it up later. But the biggest thing I did on research and actually reached out to two ophthalmologists was to make sure that I was not going to damage my eyes. Yeah, that's um, very important. Because it wasn't, uh, you know, because they're actually like on my eyes and right. um, and such. But I'm allowed, while I wear them, I make breakfast, I get kids' lunches that's ready, great. I do everything, and I wear them for 30 minutes in the morning. Can you take a photo or a video of yourself wearing this, kind of like when you did the full uh, yeah, plunge they, for it, us? It looks like it looks looks like Star Trek, man. I, can, I bet you look yeah, cool. I should probably just... 
I probably should put them on for this podcast. I don't even know why. I didn't know that what the topic was before we started. Otherwise, <laughs> I, I would have well, wore my glasses. Well, that just shows all of our listeners how authentic we are. Well, it wouldn't show our listeners shit because they're not looking at us right now. But They would on our YouTube channel. They would on our YouTube channel or our Instagram or yeah. whatever else or our newsletter that we're going to talk about at the end that's coming out soon. Any who's will be um, the cost that I saw after like a brief online search uh, was between twenty one to five hundred dollars. Um, yeah. I think I would probably pick some one in the middle somewhere, or probably whatever wire cutter told me to do, as long as it wasn't prohibitively expensive. I found them. They're called the Luminettes. L U M I N E T T E, and they're two hundred dollars on Amazon. That's not bad. I would probably pay for that to not be sad for four months. And they make they make you look like that. Oh my god. That's kind of cool, but I do want to see that on you. That needs to happen, please, sir. I, I, I look we... more like this person. Yeah, and that's just like a nondescript white guy on a, on a, <laughs> on a, on a, on a computer. So, yes, it is you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, one interesting thing is that it may uh, be able to have coverage by insurance if uh, an, hmm. a physician writes a letter of medical necessity. Have you ever had to write one for somebody? No. Yeah, I would totally do it. I'd be like, my... My patient needs this so they don't get sad. They need these cool-ass glasses. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm into it. I love the idea that physicians can write letters for stuff. It's like when I write, um, like, a adolescent patient who's in high school to, like, a note to get out of gym class. <laughs> like, I'm like, I have the power, you know? Yeah, I always tell fun. patients I'm very good at doctor's notes. They teach that in medical school. Right. And you can kind of have – you can get a lot of stuff from it. Although I am yeah. a little stingy with jury duty. I'm like – Girl, if you can sit down there and listen, you can go to jury duty. <laughs> what a tangent this is. Okay, I find, the, I find the lights helpful. Yeah. Um, although I, I, I would like to put a little qualifier out there. I don't know if I truly have seasonal affective disorder now that you've defined it. I probably have like hypo seasonal yeah. affective disorder. Like what I have mean? the symptoms, but I don't know if I... Mostly it's like fatigue and just like hopelessness. Yeah. <laughs> but I still have lots of interest in doing things. And I generally think I still have a relatively... I, I can definitely be more irritable. And I notice sure. that when I do the lights more consistently, like my, my energy level is better. Yeah. I, everything does change. So I think it makes good sense. And is I the think evidence the, good? Yeah, it, it's work? pretty good. Yeah. So um, real quick, the Mayo Clinic website has actually a really nice web page on how to pick a light box. Um, in general, they're basically just saying you, it should be greater than 10,000 lux or greater, and it has to filter out UV light. And, you know, they had some suggestions. Um so yeah if you're going to use a light box because this is the first time that i'm hearing that the glasses exist which is pretty cool um but if you're going to use a light box um i got this from the aafp um one of my favorite resources for pretty much everything in medicine i know i've talked about them a lot but the american academy of family physicians really gives great um free information to the public about pretty much everything in medicine but they're saying you should be about 16 to 24 inches or really the aafp said 12 to 18 inches so like one to two feet away from your face. Um, you have to have your eyes open, but you don't have to look directly at the light. Um, and then they basically said in subsequent years, you can use them in early autumn to kind of potentially curb the symptoms. So hmm. you can use it like kind of prophylactically. Yeah, kind um, of but like start your allergy nasal spray before the allergies start. Certainly. Yeah. And I agree with you. That's what I was thinking because I actually th- was thinking about buying a light box for myself, but I was like, I, one, will not wake up earlier in the morning just so I can sit in front of a box. I will I will press snooze a million times. I'd rather spend another half an hour in bed. I know this. It's probably not good for me, but I know that I would prefer to. So it'd be hard for me to do it 
Um, unless it was like, okay, it's like mounted onto, you know, it would work if it was mounted onto my, um, your bed, not my bed, you just like woke up and you just like turned it on and you just stared at it. But not for a half an hour. If it was mounted onto my, um, my vanity, that would make sense. If I'm like brushing my teeth, putting on my makeup in the morning, like hmm. that's the, the largest amount of time that I'm like standing in one place doing a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's different for you cause you don't put makeup on or do you? Nobody will ever know. That's true. Do we, uh, what if you only did it for 10 to 15 minutes? Like, do you think there's still benefit? I bet there is. I didn't see any specific studies or data that showed, like, if you do it not long enough, you're not going to get the benefit from it. I bet it, I bet it don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Yeah. So like all of us who don't have 30 to 45 minutes to sit and, and do this, uh, um, but I have 15 minutes where I could do it. Should I still do it? What if you did it in your car? Like, what if there was a light that was like blasting at you in your car i mean the only concern there is would it give you after images or not be able to like let you see the road well yeah i can't imagine legal. that they would be like put this in your car yeah so, so <laughs> I, I i don't think that's a ydf recommendation no i just was musing yeah scratch that okay um so that's kind of the last part about about light boxes but that was the first thing that came up and that has a fair amount of is that first line it. treatment so mm-hmm. if somebody says like i have this what's the first thing i should do is that the first thing that somebody that should is do? correct yes okay um, next is psychotherapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy, which teaches folks to learn to challenge and change their unhelpful thoughts and behaviors to improve their depressive and anxious feelings. Um, so CBT actually has been adapted specifically for people with seasonal affective disorder, and it's called CBT-SAD. <laughs> so CBT-SAD. It's a very specific type of it. Um, it's typically conducted in two weekly group sessions for six weeks that focus on replacing negative thoughts related to the season such as like thoughts about the darkness of winter or the heat of summer with more positive thoughts Hmm. Um, and then it uses a process called behavioral activation which helps people identify and schedule like pleasant engaging indoor outdoor activities to offset the loss of interest that they typically experience in winter or summer so it's like all right let's let's activate our behaviors and let's replace the urges to isolate and hibernate with doing something that brings you pleasure which kind of makes good sense when you just think about it but it's nice to have it like explicitly stated gotcha yeah you've just you've said it makes good sense a couple times so i I just don't know if that's you getting into the episode of sad because there's more sad in britain than than any maybe it does seem like it's always raining and it's like it's like portland in in britain all the time to me (laughs) Um, when research directly compared CBT that was specifically for SAD, so CBT-SAD with light therapy, um, both treatments were equally effective in mm. improving symptoms, although some symptoms got better slightly faster with light therapy than with the behavioral therapy. Sure. So there was also a long-term... Also, just much more accessible, right? Totally. Exactly. Like, like, I just put this... You know, yes or... Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, in the sense of like sitting in front of or buying this thing and having to do a thing every single day versus something that's two weekly group sessions for six weeks. Yeah. But also got to find that person who does it. Yeah. Go to it. Yes. Probably pay out of pocket for whatever the cost of the You're insurance probably right with that one. stuff is. So again, at least the light's accessible and we know it's. Yeah. You like, can buy it off of Amazon. You can't buy therapy off of Amazon. You probably can, but <laughs> But I wouldn't recommend it right now, though. No. no, yeah. I don't think Bezos is, is doing great in that, that field. Um, 
Yeah, so there was a long-term study from 2015 by Rohan et al. at the University of Vermont, which I thought was appropriate. That's a good place to, co- to, to study winter seasonal <laughs> affective disorder is Vermont. Uh, and this study followed uh, seasonal affective disorder patients uh, for two winters. And they found that the positive effects of CBD seemed to last longer. So it, said it, it had more um, permanence. Hmm. It, it lasted for maybe more than one consecutive year, which is interesting. I could buy so, that. Requires yeah. a lot more active involvement of the individual to try to maybe get to the root of the seasonal affective disorder. Totally. Versus the light therapy maybe treating the symptoms of it more so. Absolutely. So it does seem more, yeah, you're right, proactive and working on, um, you know, changing thoughts and behaviors that might have sure. a bit more permanence. Um, and then the next would be, like you you touched on too, antidepressant medications. So um, the AAFP recommends SSRIs or SNRIs. Um, so those are classes of antidepressant medications that particularly work on serotonin, which we talked about was one of the major neurotransmitters that's affected in seasonal affective disorder. Um, yeah, your Zoloft's, your, your uh, Effexors, your yeah. uh, Lexapro's, your Selexas of the world. You you the you didn't mention that specifically the one that they meant that the AFP recommended, which was fluoxetine or Prozac. Oh, Prozac. Um, yeah. yeah, they mentioned, uh, and the only reason why is because it was the most investigated drug. Um, mm-hmm. And then the National Institute of Mental, Mental Health actually recommended potentially Welbutrin or bupropion, which I could never say easily, um, like extended relief Welbutrin, taken in fall to the early spring to reduce the recurrence of SAD. So Prozac or Wellbutrin tend to be the ones that are the most studies and recommended by some of the um, major societies. Um, And then the last one is vitamin D. So for winter-specific seasonal affective disorder, there's quite a, there's a paucity of data here. This is very kind of anecdotal evidence only. Um, And for the reasons we talked about, because many people with winter pattern seasonal affective disorder have vitamin D deficiency concomitantly, supplementing back that vitamin D might help improve their symptoms. Um, However, a lot of studies have very mixed results, um, with some studies indicating that it is as effective as light therapy, and then other studies saying it has no effect whatsoever. So again, it's probably a benign thing, and it may be something that many folks are deficient in in the winter months anyway, so who cares? But there's not a, a, a strong pool of data that backs up if I just take a bunch of vitamin D my seasonal affective disorder will be effectively treated. Makes yeah, sense. my historical feeling towards vitamin D research is always that it shows promise. People research it. There's some initial optimism, and then it gets researched more, and then it gets shown that it doesn't do the thing that people hope it was doing, and then it goes away. So yeah. unless you're vitamin D deficient, it sometimes leaves you not as enthused as you were at the start of the studies. So Right. And I think it, even if somebody came to me and said, do you think I have seasonal affective disorder after today's episode – knowing what I know about, like, the inclusion criteria, I think it's relatively loose. I, I think even though there are there's a specific diagnostic criteria that needs to be for consecutive years and blah, 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 I think a lot of healthcare providers that, you know, are primary care type people would, would probably be okay with just starting some treatment for this and just calling it seasonal affective disorder if you were saying hey like look I'm having these symptoms they 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 tend to bother me way more in the winter time I'm feeling depressed I'm feeling like I want to isolate I am sleeping too much I am eating differently than I usually do and I don't feel like I have great control over it then I think you know you'd fit the diagnosis potentially of seasonal affective disorder and I think that 
you know, I would personally feel comfortable being like, all right, well, let's talk about treatment strategies. And I would definitely start with maybe trying some type of light therapy. And then I probably would, you know, seriously consider an SSRI. And then yeah, I mean, well, you go back to your therapy. intro. I think yeah. that uh, seasonal affective disorder for the reason that we all like to be in the doldrums together is just not nearly as stigmatized as many other right. uh, like mental health disorders. I think saying out loud, I think I have seasonal affective disorder is a lot easier than being like, I think I have depression. I, mean, I think I'm depressed. Yeah, right. Um, and so I think generally speaking, seasonal affective disorder, um, whether you truly have the DSM criteria of it or you just have some symptoms of it and are going to try a light box is generally low bar of entry. I mean, I just don't think that there's a lot of, there's not a lot of side effects or complications to a light box versus a um, CBT versus even the medications that are being used for, you know, concomitant mental health disorders. Yeah. So, and I wonder if framing it like saying, I think I have seasonal affective disorder is more of a gateway for people that are worried about the stigma of saying things like, I think I'm depressed. And, and I, I'm wondering if calling it something that in the name of it seems like it has an end because I think a lot, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that personally even, you know, maybe some of the reasons why people don't seek treatment for anxiety or depression is because they're like, oh, great, I'm going to be on this dumb medication for the rest of my life. And what if it has side effects? And what if I don't like it? What if I want to stop it? And I'm wondering if calling something seasonal is like, well, seasons change. It's going to change. You're going to get better. You're probably not going to need all this treatment anymore. So it, it feels like it has, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy disease of like, this is mental health problem that will get better. So just treat it now. It's okay. Just dip your toe in. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah, I mean, you have. we're all searching for control, and I think that seasonal affective disorder implies that there's a reason for it versus, yeah. you know, generalized depression and generalized anxiety are exactly those. You know, major, right. major depression disorder and general anxiety are, are – there is no reason for it. Right, it's, or the reason everything. is it's just the way that you are or the, what it's you – It's everything. It's everything. Yeah. And it's, right. it's, you inherited this. But what's funny is that the, the more that we talked about seasonal affective disorder, it really is the same thing. Like, yes, it is the shifts in the circadian, you know, the phase shift hypothesis. But really what it comes down to it, it probably is in people that are susceptible to having, uh, you know, other neurotransmitter related diseases like anxiety and depression. That's why it tends to run in other disorders too. So it's funny to be like, yeah, 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 it's the weather. It's not your fault. But it's also like, guess what? Also, depression isn't your fault or anxiety or schizophrenia or ADHD or any of that stuff. None of it's your fault. It's just shit that happens to you. And guess what? We have treatment for that, too. You also go outside more in the summer. You exercise more in the summer. You're more social in the summer. And all of those things treat your anxiety and your depression. And so maybe you actually have full year round things that you treat better in one season than you don't in the other. So there's a lot of factors that is the point. And ultimately speaking, treating the symptoms is not unreasonable. And if you use some lights and it's not working, I wouldn't just be like, well, I don't have seasonal affective disorder. I would say maybe get evaluated. Yeah, absolutely. I've been watching the newest season of True Detective, Night Country. Have you watched it? It's taking place in in, uh, Alaska during the like 60 days of night that they have there. And that just sounds like my version of hell. Yeah. They all they all walk around wearing luminette glasses. They should. They're not missing out. All right. We'll be right back. Hey, YDF listener, before we get on with uh, a little bit more awesome content, we wanted to talk about a new thing that we are introducing this week uh, as the first one will be coming out January 31st of our newsletter. Yes. The 
title is a work in progress, but the concept is This Month in Health. I like and, what, what fresh health is this. <laughs> yeah. So if you have suggestions for the title, please reach out. But it will have a collection of some uh, stories that both Julie and I thought were important for the month uh, with some of our opinions on them. In addition, I'll have our recent episodes, our recent uh, videos. It'll have some updates about the podcast. Um, and all can all this can easily come to your inbox. Uh, you just go to yourdoctorfriendspodcast.com. You'll see a sign up for the email. Sign up. It'll come once a month. We're not going to spam you more than that. No. It's a great way to keep up with what, what we're doing. So please do that right now, and then we'll get back to some more great content. All right, we're back, and I wanted to talk about measles. Have you been hearing a lot about measles? I have been hearing a lot about measles, and it's bumming me out hard. Yeah, so I think... Uh, a couple things. I think everybody is probably hearing about measles, and I do think it bums out hard. I think some of the reason why we're bumming out hard is because of the political realities that we're going through right now yeah. that make us also feel like this is coinciding with that. I think one thing that should give everybody a little solace is knowing that there's always generally a bump in measles cases like every mm -hmm. four to six years. Mm -hmm. And so, and we're about five years since the last one. So, we are kind of following a usual pattern, even though it kind of feels like we're going down a really death spiral right yeah. now with this thing. Uh, in addition, there has been a general increase in the amount of measles cases post-pandemic that maybe our vaccination rates weren't as good because people weren't getting their routine vaccinations. And so maybe we're also seeing more outbreaks and, and more severe disease. So anyways, I wanted to really just give a quick refresher onto what measles is, mm. what complications it can cause, mm -hmm. what we know about the vaccine, and then ultimately just make sure that everybody is as, as informed as possible about measles and where we're at right now. So measles is one of the most contagious diseases yes. on the face of the planet. Ooh. And um, I thought some interesting stats to kind of color that. If you have measles and there's people around you, around 90% of those people will catch measles. Oh, it's like nine and 10. It's pretty incredible. Yes. Another way of defining that is it has an N naught, which is basically one person has the disease. Mm -hmm. How many people will that person infect on average? Mm -hmm. And it's somewhere between 12 and 18, reported around 18. Gross. And just for like comparison's sake, you know, when, when the initial COVID wave, so not Omicron, mm -hmm. but like the initial one that was killing all those people and nobody yeah. really had immunity, because that's the big thing that's a lot of controversy here is that this all implies that nobody around you has immunity or vaccination when you're trying to measure these things. Mm -hmm. So going back to the initial COVID, it, it was around like three. Oh, so, geez. you know, again, and, and that's just from one reported source. I'm sure that there are some that were all over the place, but you get sure. the sense that COVID was about three. This one's about 12 to 18. So you can tell how much more contagious measles is. It's incredibly infectious. I, that's like the one thing I remember from medical school being like, and I think it was even on like board exams and stuff. It's like, which one is the most infectious one? And it's like measles, like mm -hmm. uh, 100%. So I think one of the most common misconceptions about measles is what the illness actually is. And I believe that even before I got into medical school, I had this misconception that measles is just like a bad chicken pox. Sure. You know, like there's chicken pox and then there's measles, but it's yeah. the same thing. It's just worse. Right. Right. I thought that too. Agreed. So, but it's not just like a fever and a rash. Mm -hmm. So one in five people who get measles will be hospitalized. So 20% of people will go to the hospital. Thanks. One in 20 children who get measles will get pneumonia. So that's a lot of people. Yeah. One in a thousand will get what's called encephalitis. Encephalitis oh, is cool. swelling in your brain from like the, the uh, illness actually going to your brain. Yes. And encephalitis is 
very frequently met with long-term complications. Mm -hmm. So most of these kids will go on to either getting something with deafness or brain damage. So, and that's one in a thousand. That's not even that many. And then between one and three out of every 1000 children who get measles will die. Yeah. So, you know, again, relatively deadly. If you have an outbreak of a hundred thousand, that's a lot of children who would die. And And this this is very contagious. It's not a cold. It's a super cold that has um, complication rates and scary bad outcomes that are not low. It's it's a yeah. bad disease, and it's good that it is not around at all. Do you it's remember? Good to, like it's good the, to keep it not around at all. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Do you remember the major symptoms? Because I always feel like we had to like remember what those four like major symptoms were. Oh God. I'm going to feel like Mickey when she was asking, uh, talking about Samter's triad and then we had to call it Samter's biad because you remember the third thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's fever rash, right? Fever and rash, yes. Um, is there something about like on your palms or in your mouth? No. Hmm. Um, I don't know. There's cough? Yeah, sure. And then the one is things. the word that I still for like a long time had no idea what it meant. It was coriza. Right. Oh, yeah. That's just when like gunk falls out of your face. Yes. <laughs> Which is like just like awful congestion. Right. Yeah, just like a bunch of all your mucous membranes in your nose, and you're just like spewing snot everywhere. Right. Yeah. We don't Gross. mean to make fun of it, but when you have to learn in medical school, there was like those four like yeah. C's. They basically that was, is them conjunctivitis this. one of them too. Conjunctivitis, yes. cough, coriza, and was there another C thing? I think was which was oh calor. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. I think they had to make up a four C. Yeah, calor is hot you, in Espanol. You you nailed it. Thanks. Um. All right. So. Let's talk about the vaccination. Um, Mm -hmm. The MMR vaccine, so MMR, the first M is measles, the Mm -hmm. second M is mumps, and the R is rubella. The MMR vaccine is given twice, generally speaking, in the pediatric series. Mm -hmm. It's given the first dose at 12 to 15 months. So key there is that you don't get it before you're one years old. So all kids less than one will not be vaccinated. The second dose happens around four to six years old. Here, here's what we know about the effectiveness of the of the vaccine. After your first dose, mm-hmm. so these kids around 12 to 15 months, 93% effective at preventing measles. One which dose. Is, which is unbelievable. I mean, you, you talk about like the, um, the response that people get from their COVID vaccination or their flu shot for the season or whatever. Nowhere near this. This is, this is a fantastic, efficient vaccine. Correct. Second dose, 97% effective. So anybody who has anybody who's over the age of 12 months who is not vaccinated, who's listening to our podcast, which I don't think will be many people just because you are self-selecting yourself out by listening to this podcast. Unless you're but if you know somebody, spike yeah. listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> just know that like if you go get a shot right now, 93% effective at yeah. uh, preventing what we just talked about. Pretty damn um, good. The other thing is this is a very famous vaccine. Do you remember why this vaccine is famous for it's like being controversial? Oh, God, no, I've already forgot. This is the Andrew Wakefield vaccine. Oh, that's right. This is the one that was, he, you know, published the Lancet article that said it was with autism. Yes, um, I do know this. I should I should have um, responded to that. Yes, and I absolutely colitis. know exactly. Was, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was colitis and autism and was completely made up and yep. had a lot of conflicts of interest and led to a lot of deaths because people weren't getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's interesting biopics on this there's documentaries i mean you can get some really good information on this on this thing and it's honestly scary right because we trust healthcare professionals and journals that uh, to do this and yes. even the the story here of how it was handled even once they knew it was fake is still even scary so yeah. 
long and the short of it is we know this vaccine is safe. And because of this controversy, this has probably been one of the most researched vaccines that we have because Mm -hmm. of how much scrutiny went behind it. So there's so much data. But for every 10,000 people who get a vaccine, and this data was from a New York Times um, um, uh, graphic, which I thought was well presented. Mm -hmm. For every 10,000 people who get vaccinated, there's going to be three uh, fever-related seizures, less than one, so about half a person of blood clotting, and less than 0.035 allergic reactions. And those were all that that was reported. So the worst thing is a fever-related seizure, and it was three per 10,000. And I just told you the the other stuff, the likelihood of getting hospitalized, the likelihood of getting pneumonia, the likelihood of these uh, other things. So way higher. Um, yeah. again, the vaccine is is so much safer than measles itself. One hundred percent. I think that's all the major information I had. The summary here is that we are seeing increased amounts of measles because the vaccination rate has dipped, and that mm-hmm. has dipped partially because of misinformation and i think that's where people's brains go first but i think also it has dipped due to lack of access to Mm -hmm. usual routine vaccination not from people who are anti-vaccine and not from people who don't want their kids to be vaccinated but because of the pandemic threw everything off for a lot of people in addition this has always been a little bit of an issue in other countries in which they don't have as much access in addition Mm -hmm. to that during the pandemic delivery of the vaccines to those people became a very very difficult thing so you're going to see upticks in this we may see different variability in how much but at the end of the day vaccine saves lives Mm -hmm. this is a very serious illness if you feel like measles is not a serious illness it's because you haven't seen it and you haven't seen it because people have been vaccinated and it was eradicated in the united states and only comes back in small amounts so please 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 if you are listening and know anybody who's not vaccinated this is going to be one of our bad years. There's going to be outbreaks. It's going to happen at an airport. You could be at that airport. Mm-hmm. Just get the vaccine. Get one of them. Get two of them. Right. It's not That's too late. Plead. I love it. It's one of those like starfish in the ocean or, or throwing starfish back in the ocean moments of like, you know, there's there's part of my mind that's like, stop screaming into the void about telling people to get vaccinated because people that aren't going to have already made up their minds. And I think that's just very nihilistic thinking that I'm trying to pull myself out of in this winter season in and in, in, try to try to shirk off the hopelessness and futility of like what's the point what's the point this is the point this is why we're doing this the point of this is to um if no one's saying it and no one's speaking on the side of science and evidence then uh you know the world's not a very transparent and safe place so i think I think I think you bringing this up matters, and maybe it won't change a million minds, but um, it's I, in my opinion, um, one small nudge in the right direction, and I think that that matters and is worthwhile. Well, I'd like to finish by saying if you like your doctor friends, I want you to subscribe, leave a rating and share it with somebody and then leave a comment on our Instagram feed or on our website uh, email address that you did that. And if we get over, let's say 15 of those, I'll make an entire YouTube video with me wearing those glasses. (laughs) (laughs) And nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to your doctor friends. Oh goodness. (laughs) Goodbye. The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. 
please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.